The New Year is an odd holiday to me. Uh, it's kind of my least favorite holiday. It isn't overtly religious, and for that reason, among others, I don't, you know, set out when I look at the calendar to preach, oh, i got to make sure I preach, you know, a sermon about New Year's, right? Um, in fact, as I said, an increasing number of churches were not holding services this week and sort of a rest going into 2019. Uh, but nonetheless, culturally, this is a big deal. Culturally, the dawn of a new year really is a celebration of new beginnings. Right? It's a celebration of hope in one sense. It's a collective wish that our shared future would be brighter than our shared past. One year with all its ups and downs is ending, and another year is dawning. This is a time of resolutions. A time when people aspire to better themselves. Perhaps they'll eat better. They'll work out more, read more. They'll work more or work less. They'll travel more. They'll save more money. You hear people say all the time, new year, new me, around this time of year. On one hand, the cynic in me that still dwells thinks it's ridiculous. It thinks it's silly. Nothing changes in you on December 31st into January 1st. You wake up the same person with all the good and bad that comes with that. But on the other hand, there's no reason to be cynical. It's a natural reset point. There's no need to castigate people who are trying to give healthy organization to their lives. Perhaps, though, our desire for self-actualization can be just a little bit misguided. I thought about this language, right? New year, new me. Do we see anything like that in the New Testament? And I kept thinking about this doctrine of the new self that Paul speaks about in so many of his letters, as we just read about in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, Paul is teaching the Colossian brothers and sisters how to live the Christian life. And at the heart of the Christian life, the actual living of the Christian life, the doing of the stuff of the Christian life, is sort of a twofold process a process of taking off the old and putting on the new. There's this idea in Paul's mind and in the scripture that there is an old self that is sort of hampered by sin and that the Christian life involves the putting to death of that old self and the bringing to life of the new self. The Puritans called this mortification, the putting to death, and vivification, right? The the bringing to life. Paul seems to understand this process is all done by Grace. It's the grace of God that puts to death sin in us. It's the grace of God that brings to life holiness and righteousness and this idea of the new self in us. My hope this morning is that as we look into the new year, our goal would be uh, putting on the new self, not just imagining that be, uh, by the power of my will and the force of my habits that a new person will develop, but, but that we will intentionally, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, be actively putting on the new self day in and day out. I pray that our goal of the life that we might live in the new year might not just be the, uh, the culturally best version of me, right? A thinner, smarter, uh, better me. But the version of me that I'm living into is ultimately the new me that I am becoming, right? That I'm actively taking off the old self and I'm actively in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit putting on the new self, 
doesn't mean you won't get thinner. It doesn't mean you won't get healthier. It doesn't mean you won't be more financially stable. In fact, many of those things will come as you're taking off the old and putting on the new. But the goal isn't to just become the best me possible. The goal is that I might reflect Christ more accurately. That I may grow into this new self that is more and more like Jesus. If you, like me, want that in 2019, let's look at our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, look in Colossians 3, verse 1, before we jump into uh, the five verses that we're uh, looking at this morning. Verse 1 says, If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's important to understand the foundation laid in these first few verses as we approach ours, so that we don't descend into some... Um, moralism this morning. That we preach, hey, just be nice, be kind, be good, rah, 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 let's go out and try to do those things and fail and come back next week and cheer ourselves on and fail and come back next week and repeat for a whole year. But there's something that's happened in the life of a Christian, right? Verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. That God has somehow acted in the life of a Christian. He has raised us up with Christ that ultimately who we are is hidden with Christ in God. And we will one day grow into that. We'll one day receive that reality. Ultimately, we were dead in our sin and now we've been raised to life in Christ. And you can't just be kind your way into raising yourself into life. You can't just behave yourself into life. A dead body is just dead. There's no life in it unless something outside of that body brings life to it. Christians live as Christians, or as I like to say, Christians live Christianly in response to God and his goodness. The Christian life begins and ends, and all the way through it is filled with God and his action. God has acted. God has saved us. We did not pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We did not start simply making good choices. We did not become morally superior to our neighbors and crazy cousins. We were saved. God reached down from heaven and saved us. God loved us before the foundation of the world. God made a way of salvation where there was no way. We don't try to become a certain way so that God will love us. We live a certain way because God loves us. There's nothing you can do, Christian, to make God love you more or to make God love you less. He simply loves you. You don't work for affirmation. You work from affirmation. And the moment we understand that and believe that, everything changes. That important context is actually referenced very, very briefly, I think, in verse 12 as we look at our text for this morning. Put on then, there's a command, an imperative, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, and we'll go through the list in just a moment. We see a command to put on, right? Put on. And a series of things that we'll walk through that we are to put on. But before we look at the series of things we are to put on, let's look at the indicative that Paul slides in there. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Beloved, what does Paul mean by God's chosen ones? It means that we are God's people. That God has chosen us. God loves us. We're his as God's chosen ones. Holy. What does Paul mean by holy? Holy just means we're set apart. Right? This being God's makes us unique. It makes us distinct. Because we are God's people, we are set apart as God's chosen ones, who he's loved and chosen, who he's set apart and beloved. Beloved, we are loved by the God who has chosen us and set us apart. I've gleaned a lot of pastoral wisdom from Eugene Peterson over the years, and he died several months ago, and at his funeral, his son shared so powerfully the simple lesson that he had learned from his father. He said, my dad has written so many books. My dad has studied so many things. But when I think about my dad and what my dad taught me, it really all boils down to this. He said, God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. (laughs) What a legacy to leave to your kids, right? So when I think about my dad, I think about this truth. God loves you. God's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. So he's fooled all of you. He's written all these books, but they all had that one basic idea. What a lesson to learn. And I hope this morning that we rest in that reality, that God loves you. That in Christ, God is on your side. He is coming after you. Through every toil and snare, through everything that happens, he is coming after you. And he is relentless. Then as God's people... Chosen, holy, beloved, put on these things. We take off things. Paul talked about those earlier in the chapter. Perhaps you can read that this afternoon with your family. And God is putting on, God's commanding us to put on compassionate hearts. Notice that none of these things are things we already have. (laughs) They're things we don't have, and that's why we have to put them on. Put on compassionate hearts. Learn to be compassionate. Learn to realize that your experience and your way of being in the world is not normative. Not everyone thinks like you. Not everyone has had the experiences that you do. So when you listen and when you relate to people, be compassionate. Think about who they are. Think about their experiences. Think about why they think the way they do, why they love the things they love, why they do the things they do, and empathize with your fellow man. Learn to care for other people. Learn to see more than a label. In a polarized day and age, let's put on compassionate hearts as God's people. We keep reading. Put on what? Kindness. Put on kindness. Put on a kind disposition. Put away harshness. Put away passive aggressiveness. Put away rudeness. Put on kindness, an infectious kindness, a kind of kindness that shows that someone has shown kindness to you. 
What else do we put on? We put on humility. Humility. When I think of arrogance, I think of the guy that sort of, uh, you know, walks with his shoulders back and has this swagger and, and has all this money and stuff and lets everyone know how great he is. But, but that's one side of, of arrogance and pride. But, but there's another side of arrogance and pride, right? The person in the corner who, who hopes no one sees them, who hopes no one pays attention to them, who is, who is so preoccupied with themselves, right? Pride can take many forms. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote that helps us think about humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. The scriptures command us to think rightly of ourselves, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less. It's genuinely putting other people's needs ahead of your needs. It's learning to think about other people before you think about yourself. It's learning to just be confident in who you are and who God's created you to be and engaging with the world without worrying about what the world thinks of you and whether they reject you, whether they love you, whether they hate you. Right? A, a sort of fear of others is a, is a symptom of a prideful heart. Paul tells us to put on meekness, right? Jesus teaches that blessed are the meek. What does meekness mean? It implies a quietness, a gentleness, a submissiveness, not a man or a woman full of bluster and bravado, but put on meekness. Learn to be gentle. Learn to listen before you talk. Put on what? Patience. Put on patience. People say all the time, I'm, I'm just not a patient person. Well, no one is. People have always been impatient, but I honestly think, not to be a sky is falling crazy preacher, but I think patience will be increasingly difficult to cultivate in us as we continue living in the world as it is. Think about your life today. You have to wait for less stuff today than you had to wait for 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. A kid's born today, yeah, I'm going there. Kids born today will never know what it feels like to go to Blockbuster really excited to see a certain movie, and you and your devilish, I mean, wonderful sister have finally decided on the movie you're going to watch. And it was an arduous process of deciding on that film. And you get to Blockbuster, and guess what's not there? The movie you decided to watch. So guess what happens? Another arduous fight over what movie you're going to watch. And so you have to either convince your parents to get two movies or someone settling for a movie they don't want to watch. Today, you don't have to worry about that because the internet is full of movies and you can just watch whichever one you want. That's a simple, silly, small example, but we're living in a world that's sort of eliminating the need to wait for things. And I think in that waiting in things for things big and small, the virtue of patience is cultivated. And so we as Christian people can be unique in the fact that we in a world of impatient people are patient people. We're patient with processes and we are more importantly patient with people. You can't really love someone well with whom you are not patient. Put on all of these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in verse 13, forgiving each other, and perhaps the most important phrase in the text because it reminds us of how we relate to others 
and why we relate to them that way, even as the Lord has forgiven you. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, even as the Lord has forgiven you. Notice how God's dealing with us is our reference point for how we deal with other people. God's dealing with us is our reference point for how we deal with other people. If the way other people deal with you is your reference point for how you deal with them, you will never put on the new self. You will never act compassionately. You will never act kindly or with humility or with meekness or with patience. Our reference point for how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to the world around us, is how God relates to us. Bearing with one another, hanging in there with each other, forgiving each other even as the Lord has forgiven you, not leaving relationally, not quitting on the other person, not slandering the other person, being quick to reconcile, slow to just stew on things until your heart is taken up by bitterness. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against each other, posting it on Facebook. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's all it says. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against each another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also should probably think about forgiving. Is that what the text says? No. So you also must forgive. That word carries a lot of power. It carries a lot of weight. Because forgiveness is hard. But forgiveness is worth it, as Christ has forgiven you. So also, you must forgive. You must forgive. I think in obedience to that difficult command comes a whole lot of freedom. And I think for some of you, 2019 will require some forgiving to experience some freedom. Verse 14, and above all these, above everything else, if you don't listen to anything else I say, Paul says, do this. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love covers a multitude of sins, as the scriptures say. As the scriptures say, if you've got everything, if you've got all these spiritual gifts, right, but you don't have love, you ain't got nothing. Love, it's like the the glue that holds all of this together. Love is like the conductor in the symphony that t takes all these virtues and puts them together to make a beautiful song. Above all of these, put on love. If you don't love God, if you don't love your neighbor, you won't be compassionate, you won't be kind, you won't be humble, you won't be meek, you won't be patient, you won't bear with one another, you won't forgive one another. Above all of these, First and foremost, put on love because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we've seen commands to put all of these things on in the first couple of verses. Now in verse 15, we see another command. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you're called in one body, and be thankful. Two more commands for living out this new self, right, is letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and being thankful to God. Something is ruling your heart. Right, something is is sort of calling the shots in your life. There's something or someone that's sitting on the throne of desire in your heart, and that throne of desire is like a compass, and that's pointing you towards the version of the life that you think you ought to live. And Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ be the thing that rules your heart. Let the peace of our risen Lord be the thing that guides you. Let his peace just overwhelm you in times of chaos and despair and fear. Let the peace of Christ dwell in you. You are called together as one people in one body for the peace of Christ to lord over all of you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. Paul reminds the church that the peace of Christ is to rule their individual hearts, but he's speaking in a corporate sense here, so really the peace of Christ is to rule over all of us, right? The peace of Christ is to rule over our fellowship, that that God has called us as a church, as a people, as a gathering of called out, set apart, beloved people to be God's people, for the rule of Christ to dwell over us, for us to be a people who submit to another king, who live under the rule and reign of a better king, of King Jesus, whose law is love and his gospel is peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The command is verse 16, and the rest of the verse is how we can go about obeying that command. So what's the command? The command is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we go about obeying that command? By teaching, like we're doing this morning, by teaching God's word, Not my opinions on how to live a better life in 2019, not three tips to be a better dad in 2019, not three tips to be more successful in 2019, but by teaching God's word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That admonishing can happen from the pulpit, but really that happens in relationship. It happens when we say that the scripture is sort of the key to my life. The scripture is the standard by which I aspire to live. And so together we are under the scripture and together we hold ourselves accountable to living in accordance with that reality by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, doing it wisely. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Right? We sing psalms. He's actually talking about psalms. He's talking about spiritual songs, these early songs that were being sung by the early church, these early hymns that we actually see kind of scattered throughout the New Testament. If you see a sort of poetic-sounding line that's kind of set apart in a different way, uh, we a lot of times think that that's a, a sort of uh, early form of a hymn that the people of God were putting together and singing when they gathered for corporate worship, right? We let the word of Christ dwell in us by, by teaching that word, sort of corporate and individually. We admonish one another as we together submit to that word, together saying, listen, we're not calling the shots here. This is the standard, and we all sort of are on the same page when we say we don't live up to that standard, and we encourage each other and, and admonish one another to live in accordance with how God says we are to live. 
Christ's word then, as it dwells in us, richly transforms us. The word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is the sword of the spirit that, that comes inside of us and changes us. It is the sword by which the stuff of sin is uprooted. It's the sword by which the new self is put on. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, transforms us from the inside out. As we look into 2019, a renewed commitment to God's word will be crucial if we're serious about putting on the new self. In fact, I would argue that our commitment to God's word will be a major indicator as to how serious we are about putting on the new self in 2019. Because we can say we're serious about anything. But the proof is in what is real. If we're committed to putting on the new self, if we're committed to 2019 being a year where we take our faith in Christ seriously, if we're committed to 2019 being a year of spiritual growth and spiritual transformation, if we're committed to walking into 2020, that is hard to believe that's all. If we're committed to walking into 2020 more like Jesus than we walked into 2019, we must be serious about God's word. Finally, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This verse, if we're not careful, can, can feel, at least in our context, like a sort of attack on, on verse. Like, whatever you do, just do it in the name of the Lord, right? But I think there is a uh, pretty profound statement at the heart of this verse. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm going to read a, a short quote. It's somewhat lengthy, but please hang in there from a scholar F.F. F. Bruce. His commentary on this verse was, was particularly impactful, and I didn't want to paraphrase it or say it my own way. I wanted to say it how he wrote it. Whatever you do, you're his. This is his words. The Christian, whether the apostolic age or any other generation, when confronted by a moral issue, may not find any explicit word of Christ relating to its particular details. But the question may be asked still, what is the Christian thing to do here? Can I do this without compromising my Christian confession? Can I do it, that is to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus? whose reputation is at stake in the conduct of his known followers? And can I thank God the Father through him for the opportunity of doing this thing? Even then the right course of action may be a bit ambiguous, but such questions honestly faced will commonly provide surer ethical guidance than any specific regulation. It's often easy to get around special regulation. It is less easy to get around so comprehensive a statement of Christian duty as this one. F.F. F. Bruce is saying you'll encounter many things in your life for which you'll open up to the Bible. You'll go to the Gospels. And Jesus doesn't say anything about this. Jesus doesn't say anything about this. 
Jesus doesn't say anything about this, right? And then you, you, you go to the rest of the New Testament. Oh, I don't see anything about this situation. Or you, you look at the whole of the, the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And you say, I really don't see a whole lot of guidance here. And so you might feel you're left alone and you will then sort of do whatever you want to do and justify it with your mind and then defend yourself later. But what this text is teaching is that the Christian life isn't just a bunch of regulations that we live up to. The Christian life is a life completely surrendered to Christ. That the point of the Christian life isn't just that you would live in a certain box, but that you would live where you are and do what you do, and everything you do, you would do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That everything you do would be an act of worship. Everything you do would be an act of your ambassadorship. Meaning that everything you do shows that you're a citizen of another kingdom. And you are just a sojourner traveling through the kingdom of this world. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's reminding the Colossian church, in the things that I've just mentioned off, these, this is not a comprehensive list of to be a Christian means you have to do all these things and you do them perfectly and you do them without exception and you do them without fail for your entire life. Paul is saying to be a Christian means you are Christ. Put on love above everything else. Be kind, be compassionate. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as you encounter situations with which you don't know what to do, remember who you are. And more importantly than that, more foundationally than that, Remember whose you are. As we look into 2019, we must remember whose we are. We are God's. We're God's people, holy and beloved. I'm going to pray for us this morning. Uh, we're going to do it a little bit differently with communion. So I'm going to pray. Um, the worship team's going to come up and take communion and just file around behind them. I'm still trying to find a good way to do this, right? Uh, I don't like, this is just a peek inside my brain since it's a small service, right? I don't like when we do the communion and the worship team comes up without taking communion because then it's like they're not a part of the body. Then it's like they're the performers who are serving the body. They're the body. We take it together. But then it's really awkward when I'm preaching and everyone's watching them and I'm like, hello, I'm right here. So this morning, let's choose just some silence there. So we're going to all take communion together. The worship team's going to come to the front of the line. So they're going to lead this in a second after I pray. And then if you're a follower of Christ here, I invite you to join us at the table uh, as we end 2018 as a family around the Lord's table, proclaiming the crucified, risen, and soon coming King by observing the supper which he instituted. So I'll pray for us. Uh, then together we'll take the Lord's Supper. So you can approach from the left or right side. Um, you may take it here at the table. You can take it back to your seat. Uh, you can take it, kind of look it over, uh, your brothers and sisters, whatever uh, is most comfortable for you. And then the worship team, after they uh, partake of the elements, will, will come on up and we'll, uh, we'll worship together through song one more time. So let's pray. Father, um, as we look into the new year and as we are um, sort of uh, cognizant of this time of, of new beginnings, uh, a new year brings with it this new promise that perhaps my future, perhaps our future can be brighter than our past. I pray that our sort of guiding desire would be that of becoming more like you. 
I pray that, that 2019 would not be this sort of um, time where we set these grandiose expectations and, and don't live up to them, or even worse, set the wrong expectations and then live up to them, Lord. But I pray that 2019 would be a time where we take the stuff of the Christian life seriously, where we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching us how to live, and that we together would submit to that word. I pray that 2019 would be a time where we are serious about taking off the old self and, and putting on the new self. Lord, we come and confess that we are just not that compassionate of people. We are not naturally kind people. We're not naturally humble or meek or patient. It's so hard for us to bear with one another. And Lord, it's sometimes almost impossible for us to forgive each other. But Lord, help us put on love and then empower us through that love to do all of those things. Through your love, Lord, would you make people who are not compassionate, compassionate. Would you make people who are rude, kind? Would you make us who can be self-absorbed, humble? Would you make us meek? Would you make us patient? Lord, let the peace of Christ rule in us individually and rule in us corporately, that together we would submit to your will and submit to your ways. Lord, whatever we do, let us do it in your name. Let us do it with an eye of worship and a knowledge that we're living out the reality of our residence in your kingdom and our membership in your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.